Welcome again to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. Good to be with you this morning to sing God's praises, to come before God's throne in prayer, and now to come under God's word. And to do that, as we pick up in our series on the book of James that we've been calling a theology for life. Uh, a series in which we've been seeing that theology, our understanding of God and the things of God, that our faith ought to be immensely practical. Because it's meant to be worked out and worked into and meant to be put to work in all of life. But it all begins, we're going to see today, that it all begins with Theology. It all begins with faith. It all begins with what you might call perspective. A and that's what we're going to talk about today, perspective. I know your bulletin says humility. We're going to get there. But I, as I was wrestling through this this week, I thought, ah, the, I think the word that encompasses the whole more than humility, though that's certainly a part that's woven throughout this passage, the word that encompasses the whole that I want to focus on is perspective. Sandy went out of town, though, so this is what God printed, so you're stuck with humility. But we're going to talk about perspective, and that's what we're going to talk about as we pick up where we left off last week in James chapter 4. And let me just say a little caveat before we get in. I'm going to read this, so I'd invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn there and follow along as I do. Uh, but let me just say as a caveat that there's really two ways to hear this passage. This is, this is a hard passage. This is a harsh passage in many ways. And it's very easy. I feel like it's very easy, especially if you've been around a while. It's very easy to take a passage like this and make the weight of it fall on someone else. But I want you to hear it in another way today. I want you to hear it falling on you. I want us to hear it falling on us. For a very particular reason, I hope by the end that will become clear why. I want to hear this spoken in all of its affront to us. So again, if you have a Bible, uh, open with me to James chapter 4. I'll begin in verse 1 and read all the way through to James chapter 5, verse 6. This is God's word. James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. So you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world and makes, it himself, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your, your riches have rotted and your, your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh with fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as those who too often try to mount the throne that wasn't meant for us. Who try to play the king and find ourselves devastating not only our own lives, but often too much, all those around us. if we're not doing it, we find ourselves suffering at the hands of those who are. And yet I pray today that we would see, that we would gain the perspective that all such rebellion is evil. Every little sliver of it that I pray you through your word would address now. that whether on one side of the equation or the other, you would speak to us today that we might more faithfully serve you and serve your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Life, like chess, 
is a game easily played, but very difficult to master. Does anybody know that from personal experience? I do. Because like every game I teach Emmett, Emmett ends up beating me at. Life, like chess, is a game easily played, but very difficult to master. And for chess, for chess, there's a reason for that. In the first three rounds on that 8 by 8 grid, there are over 9 million possible board configurations. A turn later, that number jumps to 288 billion. And by the end of a 40-move game, which is pretty much the typical game, at the end of a 40-move game, the number of possible positions that you will have traveled through is greater than the number of electrons in the observable universe. Chess, while relatively easy to play, is a game very difficult to master. Yet how much more a game like life? With its cultural confusion on gender and race, on sexual attraction and orientation and identification, with its confusion in, in bioethics, on life and choice and who gets to choose, and all the questions about who to marry and whether to marry, on what college to attend, what job to take, and how to make your money, and on what to spend it on. Life, like chess, but so much more, is a game easily played, but very difficult to master. Don't you think? And yet, for both, there is a single key to playing well. As any chess player worth his salt can tell you, that, that how you play is really a matter of how well you see. It's a matter of perspective. Which, when it comes to life, is precisely what James says in our passage today. As he, like one of the old guys huddled over a chessboard at the park, comes up to the novice to point out for the newbie three crucial errors in their gameplay. One, that, that they often first, often lack perspective on the end game. They don't even know what they're going after. Two, that, that they often, second, lack perspective on the moves that will get them there. And third, that the newbie makes the, the critical mistake last of lacking perspective on the consequences of the moves they're making instead. This is what James says. Three crucial errors. Because to play the game, you've got to be able to see that castles crumble and kings fall in the end because of moves made along the way. 
and that if the game is to be played well, whether with chess or with life, it's all about perspective. That's what we're going to look at today, this perspective on the end game, this perspective on the moves that will get you there, and this perspective on the consequences for the moves you're making instead, or maybe making instead, and God hope that you stop making instead, that I stop making instead. First, James says that we often lack perspective on the end game, and what it even means to win. And what winning per se even looks like. Because we often lose sight or simply lack sight of what the game is even about. We're talking about life, not chess anymore. We often don't even remember what life is about. And if you don't know what what you're playing for, there, there isn't any way that you're going to be able to play. Right? It's like not knowing, kids, whether Uno is about getting rid of cards or collecting them. You're not going to be able to play if you don't get the point of the game. You've got to figure out that before you start to play. Which is why James suggests in chapter 4, verse 1, that the root cause of living wrong, of not playing the game the right way, playing wrong is precisely this, that those who play like they, that, like that have lost their perspective on what life is really about. So James says, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What's all the trouble about? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And, and his point is this, You're playing wrong because you've lost sight or lack sight of what you're supposed to be playing for. And that giving lip service to God, you're only really living for yourselves. This is the problem for those to whom James writes. Too often it's the problem that we have ourselves. That we play for our passions, that we play for our pleasures that's what the word means as if as if what you want most at any given moment determines how the game should be played you ever play a game with someone like that who just changes the rules as you go i take a date every week i try to do every week i take the kids out on dates do different things with them uh and often every week Eden and I will end up having a shake somewhere and playing a game. And playing a game with a five-year-old is the worst. Because they're at that age where they know that they want to win, they just don't know how to win, so they make up the rules so that they can win. It's terrible. This is what James says we do. We change the rules according to our passions, according to our pleasures. But James says, verse 4, you adulterous people, which is basically his way of saying, you rule breakers. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That playing like the world plays means you're no longer playing for God. 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, he says, makes himself an enemy of God. Which is a little bit of a problem. Because this is really the point of the game. That you play for God and not yourself. That's the point of life. And yet doing this, going your own way, living for yourself, puts you in enmity with the one you're supposed to be living for. And you lose. And you lose. Which is why after grounding his point in one Old Testament text, James uses another to, in effect, call us back to to play by the rules. He says in verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Bank on His grace. His grace for the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, for God. To God. Resist the devil, he says, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Mourn and weep. I, I assume what he's talking about here is mourn and weep over what you've done wrong. And humble yourselves, he says, before the Lord. Remember the end game. Remember what life is all about. Not the momentary, passing, fleeting passions of the night. But to be living for God. But isn't it ironic? Look at this. Isn't it ironic that this call to humility is finally cast in the language of exaltation? Look at it. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Which is interesting, right? Because what probably distracts us most from playing the game like it was meant to be played, from living in God's world, God's way, with God at the center of it, is our desire to exalt ourselves, right? To change the rules so that we win. But James says that ironically, exalt yourself and you lose. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. It's like the Scottish missionary Andrew Murray wrote. He said, when God can have his rightful place in us, when we make his glory our care, In humbling ourselves, he makes our glory, his care, in perfecting us in our humility. So if you find that you're living only for yourself, and don't sweep it away as if, oh, I got most of life under control. Hear it for even the dark spots, right? If you find yourself living only for yourself, constantly changing the rules of the game to suit your latest whim, or or changing the rules for others, like James says next, that's where he goes next. Becoming judges, he says, who judge your neighbors. James says you've got to realize that in doing so, you're no longer playing well because you're no longer playing the game like it was meant to be played. Don't lose perspective on the end game. The first crucial error we make if we're living only for ourselves. 
A second, though, that James points out is that living for ourselves not only lacks perspective on the end game, but lacks perspective on the moves that lead there. Because like a novice, sometimes we're incapable of seeing the disconnect between what we're doing and how we're living and where we're supposedly heading. Which is what James says beginning in verse 13 when he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You're headed in the wrong direction. Because while you're supposed to be living for God, your actions, and in this case, your words, the words coming out of your mouth, show that you're living only for yourself. If you really want to live for God, James says in verse 15, you would say instead, even though you don't, you would say if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And this isn't just about the words. Jeff Lewis wisely wrote the other day. We were, we were set to meet each other in like, what, two hours? Jeff writes to me, if the Lord wills, I'll see you. That's not really, I mean, I get it. That's not really what James is saying. He's not saying you have to tag this on to every, every statement you make. If the Lord wills. True, it is if the Lord wills. you got to live like it, though. James is saying you don't live like it. You don't bring God into the equation at all. Not to say that you don't, Jeff. My dad does that, too. He's going to probably listen to this. I'm going to talk to him about it. This is bigger than that. Because you see, to play the game right is not only to know its point, but to have every move we make aimed in that direction. Every move, everything we do, everything that comes out of our mouth to say we're headed in that direction of living for God and not for me. Like all this past soccer season while I was teaching kids to kick and, and kick kept reminding them that, that to kick the ball straight, you have to aim your body in that direction. You don't try and kick to your left if you're headed to your right. You have to plant your body, and especially your, your toe that leads. You have to plant it. Or in baseball, right, your lead foot. You actually step into the ball to hit it where you want it to go. And this is what James is saying. All of life, our whole body, our, our postures need to aim in the, in the direction of honoring God in all and humbling ourselves before him. James is saying that there ought to be an alignment between the end at which we are aimed and the moves we make to get there. And if we're willing to admit this game is about living for God, we ought not live in such a way that suggests it's about us. When it comes to what we do with our bodies, when it comes to what we do with our money, when it comes to what we do with our families, what we do with our free time, what we watch with our eyes, what we listen to with our ears, what we put into our bodies. This ought not be so. 
if you claim the story is true. That every breath would be an opportunity to display the supremacy of King Jesus. And if it's anything less than that, it reveals a crucial error in how we're playing the game. That should be the, the, that should be the framework by which we live. That we're always asking as Christians, we're always asking, I feel like we're always coming up with this question in one form or another. We're always asking, how do I know what decisions to make in life? How do I know God's will for my life, right? Don't you ask that? Don't you ask that? I can't answer it wholesale, but I can give you a pretty good framework by which to make the decision. Here it is. It's quite simple. Simply ask, what is His will, right? What is His will? What will honor God and not myself? What will honor Him above me? As if He was the one sitting next to you at home. What would be in their best interest rather than my own? It will solve most of the dilemmas in life. If I take myself out of the equation and stop making it about me, all the decisions we get so bent out of shape about will not be so hard. There'll be a few of the, of the more ambiguous ones that you will be able to say, if the Lord wills, as we drive from one city to the next, which Catherine and I did ten or so times. As you drive from one city to the next, all your earthly belongings behind you are hop on the plane on occasion and go to the next country. Where you say, God, just end it now if it's not your will. And he will. He can do that. But most of the decisions you'll be able to say, by, does this honor God above me? And if you live accordingly. Gaining perspective on the end game of life is often, for many of us, enough, right? It's what the Holy Spirit uses to reorient us when we slide into self-centeredness. Gaining perspective on what living for God looks like and what moves what actions are aimed at that end that's often enough to call the believer out of a struggle with a particular self-centered behavior but what do you say to those who finally refuse to turn and this is where james goes next because there are those who are quite content having heard that life is not about them and that life being about God calls for certain life choices. And I know some of you struggle with this or are struggling with this even today. There are those who, who having heard and acknowledged and knowing that even that demands certain things of themselves, that there are those who continue, are quite content to remain the center of their own lives. In whatever area it is. What do you say to those? And I want to suggest that this is James' third point. That for James, it's to point out this one last crucial error in their gameplay that those who refuse to forsake the folly of living for themselves lack perspective on the really disastrous consequences of their current actions. Not only do they not want to listen to this is the way to go, 
if you want to live life rightly before God. They totally ignore the consequences to the things they're doing instead. Not only do they not see what moves a line with the end at which they ought to be aimed, they fail to see that the moves they are making instead are aimed at a very different end. And you've got to see this. Because to them, James pronounces these words from chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Some of the most dire words in the New Testament, if not in the Bible as a whole. This is James at his most prophetic. If there was ever like a voice of the Old Testament prophet that was heard in the pages of the New, here it is. He says, come now, you rich whose money is your master, is what he's saying, who are living only for yourselves. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your present actions are aimed at a desolate end. Misery, distress, wretchedness, utter dejection. We don't talk about this in our society all that much. This is what James says. That's where you're headed. You live for yourself. You make those decisions. You callous yourself against God and against God's ways. This is where you're going. Weep and howl. Play like that. Like the the throne is yours and you have the right to do what you want and to get what you want and to go after what you want and your end is utter destruction. but not in the here and now. These miseries that will come and are sure to come are about something far worse than the here and now. They are about what one day will be. You know, it's interesting in our capitalistic age that we've come to think that the worst that can happen if we go after what we want is that we don't get what we want, right? It's like the Olympics, right? Go for the Olympics. Go for gold. What's the worst that could happen? You don't get it. At least you tried. It's like Eddie the Eagle. You remember Eddie the Eagle? In the late 80s, he was a British ski jumper. The first British ski jumper to, to jump since like 1929. And he became this, this icon of heroic failure because he jumped for Britain and did nothing in the Olympics. But at least he tried. And what's the worst that could happen? He didn't get the gold. That's what we think in our capitalistic age. What's the worst that could happen? You just don't get what you want. But at least you went after it. Here, though, look at this. Look at the consequences of living for yourself. The true, lasting, and eternal consequences, they are so much greater. Get rich. Play the market. At most, you'll need to declare bankruptcy, we said. And then in a few years, you can just start it all over. That's how we've set up the system. But what James is saying is that not getting what we go after should be the least of our concerns. Listen, he says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. But that's not your end. It's not even theirs yet, but it's so sure. He's writing it in the past tense. It's going to happen. It's so sure to happen. But that's not your end. He says your end 
Riches will rot, clothes will fade away, the precious metals we have so valued will decay, the shiny stuff of life that we run after, it will all be gone. But your end, if that's what you go after, my end, if that's what I go after, is not so much not getting what I go after in the present, but about what it is setting me up for in the future. All the misery that comes with it in this life. The misery of those who make money their end. Pleasure their end. Toys their end. How much more what's coming down the pike? James says these things will corrode. But his point is that their corrosion, the fact that they don't last, what we have valued will be evidence against those who have gone after them. Hoarded to no use. From the floor of the stock exchange with money as their master that those will find themselves standing on the floor of a cosmic courtroom and they will be found guilty because they went after the wrong things. And what they went after in this life will stand as a witness against them. That's what it says. And now look at the imagery. It will stand as a witness and then turn to devour them. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, this is like psychedelic horror film stuff. You know, it's interesting. Catherine and I used to live when um, we were first married in a, in a broken down neighborhood on the north side of Chicago. One of the opportunities we had was working with a youth program, building it sort of from the ground up with a, a bunch of street kids. Uh, and during one of those ti- our time there, during our time there, some of the kids uh, we got pretty close with. And, and one in particular, I remember, was a kid who, who used to come over all the time and on, uh, he would sleep over our place. He didn't have a great home life. Um, and yet, question after question, you know what he would ask me all the time? Why you get married? That's how he would say it. Why you get married? And uh, it was interesting because he saw no point of it. Why would you give up the freedom of going from one girl to the next? This was like an 11-year-old. You're not supposed to be going after girls at 11. Why do you give up the freedom of going after one girl to the next to settle down with one? To become imprisoned to one? Which was interesting in and of itself, right? In and of itself, that this kid who, who's... He lost both his parents to overdose, um, overdoses of, of uh, different drugs. Uh, lost both of them because of their freedom. And this kid was set up to just go the same way and thought that he was having more fun in life than I was. I'm telling you, he was not having more fun than I was. And yet, that's not even the half of it. That's not even the half of it. 
But the sad part is living like that, with himself as the center of it. What he most needs, he's never going to get. And what he most wants, even if he does get it, in the end, he will end up despising. It's like C.S. Lewis said in, in, the, uh, in the last battle. If you remember, the C.S. Lewis, the children's author, said in the last battle that all in the end get what they want. They just don't always like it. Three crucial errors for those who live life as if it's all about them. First, they lack perspective on the end game. They, they miss the point of it. That in actuality, life is all about living in God's world, God's way, with God at the center of it. Second, that they live a life, uh, they live life as if it's all about them. They lack perspective not only on the point of the game, but on what it looks like to live accordingly, on the moves that are going to get them there. But third, that those who live for themselves prove that they lack perspective also on the consequences of doing so. Three crucial errors that end in a failure to glorify God, a failure to honor Him with one's life, and finally earn His eternal damnation. And I mean that, right? We, we talk about not being able to earn God's salvation. And thank God He's done it for us and done the work through Jesus Christ. But you sure can earn God's damnation. Without perspective, we are left to a self-centeredness which ends in our utter ruin. That you make it all about you. You will not only be miserable in the here and now, you will be sealing the deal to be miserable for eternity ever after which is the message of James. After laying out what life is all about, that he says, come now, you rich who live only for yourselves. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. But why? Why? Why if left to our arrogance, without perspective living for ourselves are we left to utter destruction what is self-centeredness unchecked lead to eternal damnation in the fullest sense of the word ever wonder that a lot of people think that's entirely unfair so the question stands why think it's because and i think james would agree it's because living for ourselves is the antithesis it's the very opposite of living for god listen to how james closes his his real his tirade against the rich against those whose money who, for whom money is their master he says at the end of verse three you have laid up treasure in the last days the idea is that they've hoarded it far beyond their need. And behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which is how you got rich, 
which you kept back by fraud, and they would have depended on for their livelihood, behold, they are crying out against you, and with them the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Living for yourself, you oppress all those around you. And instead of taking care of God's world, you destroy it. And instead of shepherding God's people, you scatter them when this isn't about you. You have lived on the earth, he says in verse 5, in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You see, every time we live our way as opposed to God's way, we mount the throne, we climb up on the throne that was not meant for us. And eternal damnation is the only punishment that fits the crime. Where then does that leave us? The passage is going to hit us rather than just pass over and hit someone else. I don't want to overshoot these verses going to next week's passage. We're going to get there. We're going to close out this series next week with the comfort that James brings for those who have been the victim of oppression. But where does it leave us, even for us who, who have just a, a, a hint, a remnant of this self-centeredness still in our lives because we're all there right every one of us this is what unites us as humanity each one of us wants to put ourselves in the center of our own universes it's probably what i have in common with you more than anything else some of you i know that's a fact where does it leave us well, what about those of us who are struggling with the thick of it? James' words are strong. Unrepentant self-centeredness leads to nowhere but utter destruction. That's what he says. Yet that time is not here. As James wrote, by God's patience still today, that time is not yet here. And for those of us who continue to struggle with this, for those of us especially who have not run to the refuge of Jesus, that time is not yet. And there's still a chance to, as precisely as James calls, to humble yourself before the Lord, for me to humble myself before the Lord. In light of what life is all about, in light of the lifestyle that leads to that end, and in light of the end at which living for myself is aimed, that I can give it up every hint of it, not reserve any part of it, as if, as if some piece of your life is your own. That's no good. It's no good for you. 
because life is like a game of chess. And the moves we make in the present matter for the end we'll come to in the future. We will live for ourselves or we will spend our lives throwing ourselves in faith at the mercy of our maker and living accordingly. Let me just end with this. It was 1956 when a 13-year-old boy named Bobby Fischer sat down to play a game of chess that would be hailed as the game of the century. The boy's opponent was the formidable, soon-to-be international chess master, Donald Byrne. But what made the game famous was not the age of the boy or the impressiveness of his opponent, but that through a sacrifice of his queen, in really the opening moves of the game, the 13-year-old boy was able to set in motion an unchecked onslaught that would end in the checkmate of his rival. Through the sacrifice of his queen at the beginning, to win in the end. And it was all a matter of perspective. Of being able to see that giving up what in some ways was most precious was the key to finding victory in the end. And yet in the game of life, Perspective does not demand the sacrifice of one's queen, but rather calling checkmate on one's own king. You know, that's what checkmate actually means. Shamat, it's a Semitic word. That means the, the abandoning of your king. Because if you have perspective, you will see that the only way to win this game is to abandon your king and actually throw yourself at the mercy of your opponent. The one you've made yourself an enemy of. Because it's only there in the tipping of your king that there is a chance of winning not the match. You can climb up onto that throne for a moment. but to actually escape what is to come. To tip your king and to not simply out of fear, to do so not simply out of fear, but if this is the unbelievable part, is to do so because your opponent has already tipped his own. Has already done so in the tipping of his son. And invites you to make the one move that will be your way out of all that you've earned for yourself. And it's all about perspective. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask today that for those of us here that 
those of us who still struggle, as all of us do, with the remnants of self-centeredness, of making this life about ourselves and doing it in every direction we turn. I pray even now that we would hear James' words hit us. And that ultimately we would bow before your Son that the damnation we deserve would hit him. And I pray you do it in us for the glory of your Son and the good of us and the good of those around us that God help us would be spared from all our selfishness. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen.